Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. My name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill. I'm just thankful that you would join us today for worship again. Thank you to the team from Meadowbrook Baptist. We're so glad that you're here with us uh, today. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we have a mission team in this week that's gonna help us uh, prepare for Easter. And so we're really, really thankful that they would come, uh, take their spring break uh, to hang out with, uh, with us and to love our city. So make sure you tell them thank you if you see them on the way out. Um, our, uh, um, our values at City on a Hill are the gospel, community, and mission. Uh, Gospel, it means good news. Good news that uh, we were once separated from God. That's the bad news. And the good news is that God, because he saw us, he knew our sin, he knew our sinfulness, knew that we could never live up to the standard of his holiness. Um, He gave his very own son for us to die in our place, to pay for our sins and to raise us to new life with him. And for anyone who trusts in Jesus, you can have that forgiveness of your sins. And so I'd love to talk with you after the service if you have not yet uh, done that. Uh, Secondly, community. Community is the idea that we were created for relationships, people from every walk of life, every ethnicity, every temperament, called together, unified as God's people. And then lastly, mission. Uh, God has called us onto mission with him to tell others about the good news of Jesus. And so we also live lives shaped by that as we love and serve our neighbors. Uh, If you are a guest with us this morning, you may find this blue card in your seat. Uh, You can fill that out. Uh, Just give us a way to contact you. You can drop it in the black box on, on the way out. And for doing so, we will send you a $5 gift card to a local coffee shop, as well as make a $5 donation to a, uh, to a charity uh, from a list of charities that we'll send you via email. Um, a few announcements before we jump into the text today. Uh, all that's coming up uh, for Easter. I'm very excited for Easter. Uh, we have a big Easter weekend planned, Good Friday, uh, April 16th, we are, or 15th. We are going to meet here at 6.30 with the rest of our City on a Hill congregations uh, for a, a night of worship, a night of remembering uh, the, the death of Jesus. And then coming up on that Saturday at 10 o'clock, we're going to be having an Easter egg hunt. Um, so that's for the kids, not adults. Um, and so we're going to be having that Easter egg hunt at Johnston Park, which is right next to the Green Street Tea Stop. Um, and so we need volunteers, adults. We need some for that. So make sure you grab Heather, our kids director, uh, to help with that. And then su- Easter Sunday, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to look to Jesus. We're going we're gonna to praise God that, that he is ri- risen from the dead. And we're, we're going to have a, a photo booth that morning. We're going to have uh, some refreshments as well. So it's going to be a really, really good time. And so be sure to, uh, to, to check that out. Now, I don't know about any of you, um, but when you were growing up, did you ever wonder if you were the favorite child? Uh, did anybody here think you were the favorite child? I got a few hands raising up. Were any of you an only child? Okay, so I hope that you were the favorite. If you weren't, there's a problem. And, uh, and so when we think about having uh, favorite children, I mean, like when I think about the way that my parents raised me, it was kind of hard to tell who was the favorite. Um, we, in my family, we tried to make sure that for our four girls, we don't show favoritism to one over the other. But the way that you love your children is you don't necessarily, if you have more than one, it's not that you love more one, hopefully, more than the other, but you you, 
you just kind of love them differently. There's just different aspects of their personality. I joke with my children that whichever one is closest to me at the time is my favorite. So it just means they're always near me. Uh, but the idea, but we, we love our children differently. If you were a child, you, you all were, you were loved differently by your parents if you had siblings. And we see the way that Paul treats all the churches that he planted like they are his children. And he loved each one a little bit differently than the other. Some scholars say that, that Paul planted somewhere between 14 and 20 churches. He had a lot of children um, and that these churches ended up planting churches. And this is how the church planting movement we are a part of today has grown. And we see from looking at each letter how Paul loved each of his children differently. There's a unique tone, there's unique content, um, there's a special touch in each letter that he deals with some churches very tenderly, and he deals with some churches with a little more, uh, how shall we say, uh, directness or harshness. So if you're a middle child, say amen. Um, and so, but it's clear that the way that Paul approached the Ephesian church, that he had a special place in his heart for them. And we know this because as you look at the end of the letter, we see that Paul has gone to great lengths to make sure that this letter gets into their hands. Tychicus uh, is, delivers this letter. He was called by Paul a beloved brother and faithful minister. So Paul has entrusted this letter into the hands of someone that he believed would make sure that the message got to them and that what needed to be communicated would get to them. And this was the custom in this time that a messenger would take a letter to a group of people and read it. And so this letter was instruction to the church. We also see in these final words, as we close out the Ephesians series, that there are three other purposes as to why Paul sent Tychicus to them. And one we see in verse 21 is that they would know how he was doing. He says that you may also know how I am. He wanted them to not just understand his instruction, but how he was doing personally. We also see that he wanted them to know what he was doing. This is what I am doing. Paul is doing five to 10 in the county jail. He's hanging out with a bunch of convicts. Um, he's imprisoned. He's got two guards on each side of him, chained him, and he's leading them to Jesus. He wants them to know what he is up to. But he also says that he wanted to encourage their hearts. He wanted them to know that he loved them. He wanted them to know that he saw how hard they were working and how hard it was to live as, in a, as a Christian in a city like Ephesus. Paul wanted this church to thrive. He wanted them to live out this vision to be the church that Paul had longed for them to be. And he wanted them to be this church long after he was gone. It's weird for me to say this because we are like barely, not even a year and a half into this church plan, but there is a day, not today, I'm gonna be clear, this is not my resignation. Um, there's gonna be a day where I will not be the pastor of City on a Hill. Now look, I pray that is 25 or 30 years down the line. I pray that God gives us years of faithful ministry where this church grows. We have incredible influence and hundreds, if not thousands of people come to faith in Jesus and we plant lots of churches, amen? I pray that that happens. But 25, 30 years from now, God willing, someone else will be the pastor of this church. And my prayer is that it will outlive me, that it will outlive every single person in this room. And one day, generations down the road, there will still be people clinging to Jesus. There will still be people who have a granular focus on the glory of God. And I pray that I finish well in ministry and I pray that City on a Hill becomes who God wants us to be. And it's interesting as you piece the story of the Ephesian church together through scripture, you see an incredibly impactful church. We see that they become the flagship church in Asia. This is an Asian church. 
They, they planted lots of churches. They sent lots of ministry. They're in a strategic location, just like we are here in Boston. They had some killer leaders. They had the Apostle Paul as a pastor. Would you ever sin if the Apostle Paul was preaching to you? You would. Um, they had Timothy, who was Paul's understudy. John, John, the one who was the beloved disciple of Jesus, was a pastor for them at some point. But somewhere along the way, this faithful church, this impactful church began to go off track. And what we just read a few minutes ago in Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven, is a future picture from the vantage point we have here at the end of Ephesians chapter six. John wrote those words somewhere between 69 and 98 AD, meaning that somewhere between 10 and 30 years after Paul wrote these words to this church, the Ephesian church drifted away and they were in serious trouble. Last week, we began to talk about spiritual warfare, and we talked about how Satan's schemes are to kill, steal, and destroy, to sideline Christians and to make churches ineffective. And sometimes Satan comes with an all-out blitz, but sometimes Satan is willing to play the long game. And if you look at the other letters that, that, or the other churches that John wrote to in Revelation, we see churches that got distracted, we see churches that got lukewarm. We see churches that fell into doctrinal error. We see churches that fell into moral error. And what happened is it didn't happen by one big jump. It happened by being one degree off. If you take a compass and it is one degree off, eventually you will be miles off course. Satan is willing to take the long game to derail us as a church. And as John writes these words, Jesus's words to Ephesus, he's saying, you have gotten off course. The angel and the stars that are represented in Revelation 2 are the idea that there's a spiritual reality to the church, that Jesus has to be the one that holds us together. Jesus has to be the one that binds us. He has to be the one that gives us power. And the, the idea of the lampstands, this picture of being a light to the world, which a city on a hill is to be, that Jesus himself was walking among those lampstands, giving his very presence to them. And the threat was that one day that that lampstand would be removed, meaning that Jesus's very presence would be removed from a church. There are churches in our city who are churches in name only, and I'm not gonna start naming a list. There are churches that along the way, somewhere along the way, lost the gospel, lost a focus on who God is and what he has done. In Revelation, it's interesting because it's not meant to scare you, but it's meant to strengthen your faith and call you to wake up and call us to stay alert. And we see a similar warning here at the end of Ephesians chapter six, that the Ephesian church didn't heed and that for us, we need to. They missed it, but it's a reminder to us to keep alert, to stay ready and to not drift. There's a call to prayer. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. John Stott says that most Christians pray sometimes with some prayers and some degree of perseverance for some of God's people. We have to be alert in prayer all the time. The word keep alert there is a military term. It's military imagery. And it's the idea of a watchman standing on the wall, looking at the horizon for an enemy to approach. That they could never lose concentration because a crafty enemy would watch for that very moment where the watchman would take their eyes off the horizon and then they would attack. 
We have to stay alert in prayer. And so this passage, these passages reveal three areas that we're gonna be most tempted to lose focus and to drift. And so these are the three areas that as a church, we need to pray for the most. The first is we need to ask God for gospel clarity. We need to ask God for gospel clarity. Verses 18 and 19 tell us that the way we stay alert is to pray. As we pray, we become more aware of our need to pray. And then what do we do more? We pray. We stay alert through prayer. And Paul says, first of all, I want you to pray for all the saints, meaning that here as a church in Boston, we have to pray for other Christians. We have to pray for other churches. There are lots of faithful churches in the city of Boston. We need to pray that they remain faithful. We need to pray that they remain strength. And we need to pray that God flourishes, helps them flourish and helps them prosper. There are lots of other Christians in our city that we can pray that God would use them in a mighty way. One of my favorite things over the summer is we play softball as a church. And one of my favorite things other than beating other churches at softball is hanging out with those other Christians is I get to, we get to spend time with them. And we pray together and we ask how things are going. It's, it's one of my favorite things. We need to do that. We need to pray for Christians and churches around the world in Afghanistan and Ukraine and parts of Asia and Africa and places where the, the gospel is not as easily accessible, where there's real persecution. But Paul also says something really curious. He says, and me. I want you to pray for all saints, but also pray for me. This is really unique because nowhere else in Paul's letters does he ask for prayer solely for himself. He would often ask for prayers for he and his companions that the gospel would go forward or all the things that they were facing, that God would give them strength to face. But never has he asked for them to pray just for him. And the first thing he asked for is he asked that he would clearly communicate the gospel, that he would continue to faithfully preach God's word. And the reason is, is that it is so easy to lose the gospel. It's so easy to lose our hope in what Jesus Christ has done for us alone. And the reason is, is that one is we'll just revert to good works. We'll revert to rule following without even realizing it. Because five steps to whatever is a lot easier than the heart level righteousness that Jesus wants to craft in us. It's a lot easier than daily repenting and believing that Jesus is enough. The other side of this is that we would tend to relax. We tend to relax what the Bible says in order to not offend or to explain away or to soften God's word. And Paul says, I want to clearly communicate God's word. And we notice this through two phrases that he says. He says that words may be given to me. Paul's saying, I don't want to rely upon my own wisdom. I don't want to rely upon my own wit. I don't want to rely upon my own eloquence. There's not some sort of magic bullet. There's not something I can do that's going to move and motivate the hearts of a single person. It is going to be the very words that God gives me that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that this works. And Paul is saying this, sitting in a jail cell with convicts on every side, hardened thieves and murderers and and guards, and he's sitting there wondering, how in the world do I say something that impacts them? What are the words that I'm going to have that's going to reach another person? Have you ever been there? You ever been sitting there and you've been wondering, you've you've been wanting to be faithful to share the gospel with someone, and you're like, Lord, I have no clue what to say. I have no clue what to say to my friend or my neighbor or my family member. And I, I don't know what to do. It's, it's easy to think, you know, if I just had the right, the right method, 
If I just had the right canned gospel presentation, if I, if I just had the right words, this person would listen. If I was just a better communicator, she would be encouraged. But Paul is saying, give me the words. What he realizes is that all the words, all the power, all the provision to do the work of God has been given to those who will ask. And what this means for you and I is that the pressure is completely off. If it's God who has to move in someone's heart, guess what? It means that you don't have to be the one to move them. You just have to to be faithful and God will work. One of the most freeing truths I ever believed in, in planting churches is this, is that God wants my family and friends to know him more than I ever will. God won't, he, he loves them and he sent his very son for them. God loves our city more than I ever will. God wants to see this neighborhood reached with the gospel more than we ever could. And so we've been given all we need in his word, meaning that we submit ourselves to the Bible to become our grid for what is true and what is right and what is good and what is beautiful. And it means that we don't have to adjust it to the shifting whims of culture. And our prayer is that we would make it, God would make it clear to us so we can make it clear to others. But he also prays that he would be enamored with the mystery of the gospel. Do, do you realize this morning how wonderful Jesus is? How, how beautiful the message of Jesus is? Do, do you ever get awestruck at what Jesus has done for you? And if you're considering Christianity this morning, at some point you have to wrestle with the question, Why? why would Jesus so willingly die for me? It has to become personal. It can't be something that's, that's you know, ethereal. It can't be something that's out there, something that's abstract. It has to come home. You have to ask yourself, why would Jesus die for me when no one else will die for my mistakes? Your job's not gonna die for you when you make a mistake. They're gonna fire you. Your school, you know, relationships, success, those are things that are, that, that are never going to die for you. Jesus, knowing your sin, willingly died so that you could live. He was separated from the Father so that you could be a part of a family. And it's a mystery because who does that, right? Who does that? It should create awe and wonder in our hearts. And there's this, this song that we often sing called Mercy. And it has this bridge that says, oh, may I never lose the wonder. Oh, the wonder of your mercy. May I sing your hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. When we see the wonder of the mercy and the grace of God, the only proper response is awe and wonder and hallelujah and amen. Amen. Church, we need to ask, and I ask you to pray for this, that we would never lose a clear communication and wonder of the hope of Jesus. That we never stop looking to God's word for how we are to live or from where our hope comes from. That we don't let worldly ideologies and ideas capture our hearts and minds and imaginations. That we would lay ourselves before God, wholly dependent upon his spirit. Church, I pray that you would pray that for me. Pray that I never lose that wonder. My goal every Sunday is to warm your heart to Jesus. Every sermon's coming back to that. So spoiler alert, right? It's all coming back to that. I want you to wonder and awe at the gospel in church. Like I literally can't eat on Sunday mornings. Like I, I can't, like I can't. If people try to hand me coffee or a donut, I, I can't do it. We'll get it later. Because this is so weighty and so important and I never wanna lose that. 
So two questions are, are you submitting yourself to God's word and asking him to make it clear to you? And secondly, are you in awe of Jesus? The second ask we make of God is that we ask for, God, for gospel boldness. We pray not just for clarity, but also to boldly proclaim the gospel. Now, let me be clear. Being bold does not mean being a jerk. Those are different things, okay? Being bold does not mean being a jerk. Every, you ever notice when someone says, you know, I'm just telling you the truth, they're telling you that because they've just been a jerk. So it doesn't mean the same thing. We are called to communicate the truth in love, but that takes boldness to do so. Paul, again, he's sitting here, and it would have been easy for him as he's even writing this letter to soften the message and to hide away because he's in prison. And look, I've never been to prison. I have friends who went to prison. I don't want to go to prison. It sounds terrible. I can imagine what a first century prison was like. Sounds awful. It would have been really easy for Paul to say, you know what? I'm not going to rile up the guards. I'm not going to make the convict sitting next to me mad. But here he prays, Lord, give me boldness that I may clearly tell them about Jesus. And there's a temptation for you and I to do the exact same thing because if we're honest, it is not easy to be a Christian in Boston. It's not easy. If you're following Jesus here, you're going for it. Like, I mean, amen, praise God. I'm so thankful for you because, because it's not easy. Because what we believe sometimes is it's hard for people to believe. It seems narrow. It doesn't seem popular. And It'd be easy for you to go to work tomorrow or go to the classroom tomorrow and say, you know, I'm just going to keep my head down because I want to be liked. I'm going to keep my head down because I want to get promoted. It'd be a lot harder if people knew that I followed Jesus. It, it requires boldness. And again, that doesn't mean be a jerk or be forceful, but that we never shy away from our hope in Christ. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The other temptation is just to capitulate, to take the edge off of the gospel, to ignore the hard passages. And I pray that as a church, we never do that. I've said faithfully from the very beginning, we're just gonna walk through the Bible and we're gonna tell you what it says and we're gonna wrestle with it. That we would never do that. And I want you to notice what it means for Paul to be bold. Paul says that he is an ambassador in chains. He's an ambassador. He's saying, my purpose is that I've been sent by God to this place, to the cell to tell people about Jesus. He's saying, because I'm an ambassador, I'm wholly devoted to Jesus, wholly devoted to the gospel, wholly devoted to making sure that other people hear this. But as an ambassador, it's not just that. It means that he has immunity. An ambassador in the old world had the immunity that they could speak without fear of punishment, meaning that what Paul's Thought when he saw himself in this prison cell, he's saying, this isn't, a, this isn't imprisonment. This isn't punishment. This is an opportunity. We pray for boldness because Jesus is worthy and every sacrifice that we make is worth it. And what's really interesting about the word chains here is it's not the chains that bind your arms. It's actually the word that's used for a gold chain that goes around your neck. So if you ever watch college football and you see the turnover chain, right? Like Miami has this big golden chain with a big U on it. And they put, imagine that. Paul's saying, this is my, the crown of glory. That what I am deferring now, I will get in eternity. He's saying that this is what has been laid ahead for me. Church, will we proclaim the hope of Jesus boldly? We've been reading uh, this new book in our community groups called Surprise the World. 
Uh, some of our groups are in different places. You may not have gotten here yet. So sorry, I'm not going to spoil the first chapter. Um, but it talks about how some of us are just not natural evangelists. Some of us are more introverted. We're not as outgoing. And it says one way that we can proclaim the gospel boldly is by living a questionable life, meaning that your life should demand questions. The way that you live the, is so shaped by Jesus, it's radically different in how you spend your money or where you choose to live or what you do with your time or who you hang around. And one simple way to do this is honestly to invite people to Easter. Like, I'm, 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 that's gonna be one of the more shocking things you can honestly do. Somebody's going, why, why do you want me to come to Easter? It's like, because Jesus loves you. So again, I did this last week. There are five invites in your, in your, in your chair, in your seat. And, and we would invite any of you to take these and prayerfully invite five people to Easter with the hope of bringing one. So a little plug there. Be sure to grab those on the way out. Next, we asked God for a gospel culture in our church. Last week, we prayed for God to build, preserve, and increase a culture within our church where the love of Christ is exuded. And we see this in verse 18, where Paul says that we pray for all the saints. We pray for one another that we would grow and thrive and we'd experience the gospel through our lives together as the church. And if we fast forward over to Revelation chapter two, we get this picture of the future church, of the future Ephesian church. We see in verse two, man, these guys worked hard. They toiled, they, they fought hard. They didn't entertain evil. They were, they were very just. They, they had really sound doctrine. They combated false teachers. You can imagine this church had airtight theology. I mean, everything was just airtight. Their sermons were probably fire every Sunday, right? Hundreds of podcast downloads every week. They had deep theological Bible studies where people are like reading Grudem in Greek and like they're doing all the crazy. So they're doing everything they can to just go as deep as they possibly can. Yet Jesus says in verse four, you've drifted. You stopped loving each other. You stopped doing the hard work. And you can imagine what this looks like, that there would be a very eloquent sermon on Sunday about the Ephesians 2 church and being united, two people becoming one Yet it's only lip service because Gentiles only hang out with Gentiles and Jews only hang out with Jews and the rich only hang out with the rich and the poor only hang out with the poor. You can see a church that talks a lot about service, but yet people see it as a means to come and receive. They've lost their vision for being people deeply formed by Jesus and the way that they loved each other had shifted and changed. And the result is that they were in danger of God's presence leaving the church. How scary is that? That you can have all the right doctrine. You can quote all the right theologians. You can technically read the Bible the right way, yet not love people well, and it means that God's presence would leave you. Stephen Smalley says that a lack of love leads to spiritual death individually and corporately. And church, we need to be alert for this drift. The way this happens is that one, we just stop being intentional. We stop pressing into each other's lives. We stop reaching out and we only go to what's comfortable. Secondly is when we make community an idol. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of 
the ladder. In other words, you can have such a grand vision of what community can be, maybe from a past experience. Maybe you can think of a time in your life where like, man, I was single and had all the time in the world and all my friends were single and we just hung out all the time and our lives were intermeshed. And then like now you have jobs and maybe you have a couple kids and life's just not as easy. And you're still comparing community back then to now and you're putting that expectation on this and you're completely crushing any opportunity for gospel community. We can also do this when community happens minus the gospel. We just like being together, but we're not really pressing the gospel deeply into each other's hearts. And Jesus tells the Ephesian church, he says, the way back is to repent, to repent and return to the work you did at first. And this is what it means to live out this gospel culture is that we will press the hope of Jesus deeply into our hearts again and again and again and again. We would be people who show, give, receive, and embody grace. I believe God is doing something special in our church. We have people coming to faith in Jesus. Look, one of my, favorite, my two favorite things about being a part of a church are A, baby dedication, so check, got that this morning, and B is when people come to faith in Christ. We're having baptisms on Easter. How exciting is that? I love seeing what God is doing. I love seeing people love and serve each other. I'm so excited to see people finding real friendships. Satan would love nothing more than to derail that for us to take our eyes off of Jesus and to stop loving each other. And the way we fight this is by daily and weekly submitting ourselves to Jesus. I pray that we would see a vibrant, gospel-centered, Jesus-dependent church here in Jamaica Plain for generations to come. And so just a few questions as we close. Where are you struggling to keep alert? Maybe it's the clarity of the gospel that you're tempted to soften the edge. Maybe it's boldly proclaiming it to others. Maybe you're hearing it on Sundays, but you're not living it out in community. Where do you need to return and repent? Maybe for you this morning, this is the very first time. Maybe you're hearing the gospel clearly for the first time, that you realize that you are a sinner who needs a savior. And I pray that you would place your faith and trust in Jesus today. Let's pray. 